When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. And what are we doing this time around? Well, once again... We're going to return to Amazon's TV series, The Rings of Power. One thing we can do, better than any creature in all Middle-earth, we stay true to each other. Because I just gotta, because at time of recording, I have seen the final episode of Series 1 twice in 24 hours. Yeah, that's how much I was paying attention, interested and drawn in. And the other thing I want to talk about, and this might sound a little bit weird, is we've got a relatively new movie that's come out called The Woman King. I offer you a choice. Fight or we die. Now, these two things are not the same story, not even remotely. One is, of course, pure fantasy. None of Lord of the Rings actually happened, whereas The Woman King is the story about a group of female warriors in the Dahomey Kingdom in the 1800s, and that's a real thing. So we got real history and we got fantasy, and yet both of them have kind of got into a little bit of trouble about following what we actually know. You know nothing, Jon Snow. And so I want to explore that using these two very different things. And for the record, both are great, but there's just a really interesting conversation to be had here. So, okay, let's start with the Woman King. Now, the only negative I'm going to say about it is whoever named this film needs to be taken into a field and shot, okay? (laughs) Terrible, terrible name. Do we have a name? For a woman king? Yes, we do. It's a queen. I am your queen. And what does this queen do in this movie? Well, they fight, because that's what they do. So wouldn't a better name and a more obvious way of bringing you into the film, wouldn't you want to go and see a film called The Warrior Queen? It's there. It's obvious. Why didn't you call it The Warrior Queen? Whoever thought Woman King was a better name for a movie, like I said taken into a field and shot. Now, that's the one negative that in no way impacts the quality of the actual movie, which is directed by Gina Prince-Blythewood, and she 
is a great director and she does a great job with this film. It stars Viola Davis. She is Naniska. She is the warrior queen. Uh, sorry, see, this is the thing. I want to keep saying queen because warrior queen makes more sense. She's the female king in this movie. So Gina Prince-Blythewood, Viola Davis, you got Ashana Lynch, you got John Boyega. Look, this whole thing is set in West Africa, so it is unsurprising that pretty much the entire endeavor was done by African-American and black British actors and what young directors and screenwriters and so on and so forth. And it's an amazing rebuttal against people who are sort of saying, Oh, do you know what? If we're going to talk about black history, it, it almost needs to be put into its own little ghetto. We'll do something about Malcolm X or we'll do something about slavery, but it's going to be put in its own little corner. Whereas, of course, the thing I always get so angry about Black History Month, be it either American Black History Month or British Black History Month, is invariably the same people are trotted out. Now, to be clear, Martin Luther King was a great man. I have a dream. Nelson Mandela was a great man, but the problem with almost all of these people, Mary Seacole, let's throw her in there as well, great woman, it's all white adjacent history. What do I mean by that? I mean that the story of, let's say, Martin Luther King is what makes him special is the fact that he was pushing for civil rights in America, which was led by a white majority and a white dominated government. And so... If, if they'd already got everything right in terms of civil rights, he wouldn't have been anything other than a Baptist minister. So pretty much when you see a movie about Malcolm X or, like I said, 12 Years a Slave, and there are loads of these films, invariably the black people are seen as victims. And sometimes it's a case of they have to go through horrible things to get some kind of justice. Or in other cases, they sort of do the right thing and still terrible things happen to them at the end of it. And also, on top of that, a lot of it is to do with slavery. And there's just a lot more going on about black history than just slavery and civil rights in America. So one of the great things about The Woman King is it points out correctly that there are multiple highly complex societies throughout African history. One of the richest people in history was Mansa Musa. This is the leader of the Malian Empire. He was around in the early 1300s, and he was just fabulously wealthy. I actually wrote an article for All About History magazine talking about him and talking about how he technically went on the most expensive holiday vacation in history. I mean, good holiday, that's what I need. Where, cutting a long story short, he was spending so much gold, the Malian Empire was the main source of gold to the known world in the Middle Ages. So if you had gold in, let's say, Italy, that gold probably was mined from actually Malian mines. They also made a fortune out of salt. They were a Muslim empire, by the way. So when Mansa Musa went on the pilgrimage to Mecca, as every good Muslim should do... <gasps> He spent so much money in Egypt, he destroyed the economy. He, he flooded the market with gold, and so he inadvertently caused more damage than an invading army by being so generous. That shows you how much money he had. And yet there aren't many films about him, as in none, which at least are being produced by Hollywood. So if you like, The Woman King is a rebuttal to all these other films saying, hey, do you know what? There's lots of really interesting, proud, African history, let's do something like that. Let's do it. 
Let's do it. And so, what makes this film so progressive and modern is it centers around women of color. They're, they're not the only ones, but you then think about the other sort of epics that I might mention. It could be Gladiator, it could be Spartacus, it could be Cleopatra. Yes, there are people of color in there, but they're ancillary characters. The main central characters are white, even though Cleopatra VII wasn't white. But anyway, let's not go there. Princess Cleopatra, sir, daughter of the two rams, mistress of Sedge and Bee. So the thing is, just having these women of color as the heroes, as being strong, fighting, which is genuinely what these women from this territory called Dahomey. It was the kingdom of Dahomey. It's in modern day Benin. If you aren't all up on your West African geography, I'm going to do the best I can. The sticky out bit of Africa in the top left, okay? The bottom of that sticky out bit is sort of like West Africa. That's what we tend to talk about. And Kind of in the middle of that, there's Ghana. You might know where Ghana is. And right on the edge of that, where it kind of wraps around to the long bit of Africa, that's where Nigeria is. Nigeria is the most populous country in all of Africa. So between Nigeria and Ghana, there are several countries. One of them is Benin. Part of Benin used to be the kingdom of Dahomey. That's where we're talking about in terms of geography. The Kingdom of Dahomey started in the 1600s and it went on till the very end of the 1800s. It was eventually invaded by the French multiple times, actually. It took them multiple times to actually beat these female warriors. To the west, they were called the Dahomey, as in the kingdom, the Dahomey Amazons. The Amazons were these female warriors of ancient Greek myth. The thing is, they didn't exist in ancient Greece. But the thing about these ladies is they really did exist and they were fearsome. So the process was that basically young, fit women would be brought in to this group. The group themselves wasn't obviously called the Dahomey Amazons. They were called the Agogi, which is interesting because you get the Agogi, which is the training process of Spartan warriors. This is Sparta! Complete coincidence that those two words are very similar sounding, very different cultures, very different languages, and yet you've got these two types of warriors with very similar names in the process. So the Agoji were these females. They were basically the elite forces of the Dahomey army. They were all technically married to the king, although they were meant to lead celibate lives. Because, obviously, you can't have a bunch of pregnant women fighting in battle. They're not at their best seven months pregnant. So, for practical reasons, that's what was going on. They were allowed to retire. They did have fierce fighting. In the movie, you can see them sort of like training with really thick thorn bushes, which cause horrible damage to the human body. They're almost like natural barbed wire. Yes, they trained with those and with fire. And make no mistake about it, once they got their access to muskets, they were using firearms just as much as they were, might be using sort of clubs and swords and things like that. Bows and arrows were also available. So they were a fighting force in the sense of any fighting force around the world, except with the rather unique angle that they were female. Everything I've just said is kind of undisputed true, and you absolutely get this in the movie. But what I find fascinating about this film is whereas it's so progressive in terms of, you know, let's centralize on Africa and women of color and show them to be strong, 
all that's true, but all that's very pleasing to a modern audience. However, the filmmaking itself, the way it's shot, the storytelling itself is very old fashioned. This is the way they told Spartacus. This is the way they told Cleopatra. There's no flashbacks, as it were. It's, it's not sort of like a clever modern trickery. It's like we have got a grand sweeping sword and sandals tale, and we're going to tell it in the way that you're used to. It's the same with Gladiator. Gladiator is an amazing film, but it's not a complex story. It's not super hard to follow, because that's almost not the point of these films, but also something which I think is a great leveling. It's a great sign of how far black cinema has come over the last 40 years, that this movie takes as many liberties with history as the movie 300 or Gladiator or Spartacus. You get the idea, okay? So if you are trying to understand the Middle Ages from the adventures of Robin Hood. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the Glen. You're doing it wrong because that wonderful 1938 Errol Flynn movie is swashbuckling and it's designed for adventure and it's loosely based on some actual history. But facts be damned, we're just going to show you a good time. And that's what's going on in this film as well. The thing that I sort of worried about when I found out this was happening is John Boyega plays the king of Dahomey, and he is a real king from history, and his name is Gizo. And Gizo was a really ardent slaver. The thing about Dahomey is it was a militaristic society, a bit like the Spartans or the Ottomans. It was designed to expand. It worked best when it took over other territories and, oh yeah, those people we've just taken over, we're going to enslave them. Now, of course, invariably the people who paid the best prices for slaves were the white people who would be shipping them over to America, the whole transatlantic slave trade. And what's often forgotten about that is the fact that it wasn't until the 1800s that you get the European powers doing the scramble for Africa. They're all carving up Africa in the 1800s because prior to that, they basically all kept dying of horrible diseases every time they tried to invade. The Portuguese and the Dutch made little bits of inroads in various places, and indeed in this movie, the main bad guys are Portuguese slavers. But you can't really have in the modern world a black king who's going, I love slavery and I'm going to slave away and slave, slave, slave. That's not going to make them the good guys. But the reality is that's exactly what the Dahomey Amazons did. They propped up a regime by force that enslaved black people and sold them into the slave markets. Now, I've heard some people, again, sort of almost being revisionist about this, go, oh, these territories were sort of forced into it. No, they weren't. Nobody's giving them at gunpoint. What they're doing is they found a way to make money out of their enemies, and that would work in any society, in any time frame, unfortunately. Don't believe me? Open a history book, any random history book, and you're going to find out that human beings can be horrible to the other country, the neighboring power, whoever it may be. So, yeah, they dodge that one by just basically ignoring it and making up their own version of it. And I'm not criticizing them for that, because... They did that with Spartacus. They did that, you know, the famous ending of Spartacus never happened. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! Is it a great movie with a great ending? Yes! Did they get some facts right? Yes! But is it historically accurate all the way through? A clue? No. No, it isn't. 
And it's the same thing here. And I say that's great. Because when you get movies like, for example, something like 12 Years a Slave, there was so much effort in making it all historically accurate and really bringing to life the terrible story from the book that was then turned into a movie, a real book from a real man who really was a slave for 12 years. Not going to go into that one, but if you like, there are all these extraordinarily worthy black history movies which, because they're so worthy and they've got such an uncomfortable, unfair story to tell, they're not really absorbed by many white people. I remember when Malcolm X came out, huge fan of Denzel Washington, really liked Spike Lee as well. I mean, he's had his good times and bad times, but at this point, you know, kind of on a roll, as it were, I went with my mother to see that film in the cinema. And my mother and I were the only two white people in the entire cinema. The cinema was full. Everybody wanted to go and see it. It was a relatively big hit. But, of course, do you really want to see a movie where this man is going to be poorly treated by the people in power who are all white? The record is a great movie. But again, Malcolm X is, at the time, there were some people going, this could have been directed by Richard Attenborough. You know, uh, Spike Lee, who's so edgy and full of this sort of verve and wit and all this kind of stuff, all of that sort of energy from the sort of late 80s and early 90s that he had sort of ebbed away. And he told the story of Malcolm X the way Richard Attenborough told the story of Gandhi. You know, it was, again, a bit like The Woman King. It was very earnest and serious, and A happens, then B happens, then C happens. There's no clever timeline or trickery or anything like that. It's just, we'll take you from the beginning of the story to the end of the story with the sweeping music. It's not full of something like, you know, at the time, modern hip hop or, or anything like that. It's like, no, you know, we're, we're gonna give you the same kind of music that you'd get in Dances with Wolves, you know, which swells with the orchestra. And again, completely appropriate, but, it surprised a lot of people. So oh, I was expecting something different from Spike Lee. And indeed, he has done some sort of, again, sort of edgy, counterintuitive, anachronistic music in the wrong place for certain other films and stories as well. But Woman King, well done, you know, to the anybody there of, of, sort of like mixed race or, or of any kind of, sort of like minorities out there. If you're sitting there going, well, they didn't get the history right. Welcome to what white people have been experiencing for a hundred years. It's the same with us. And it's because Hollywood is not obliged to get it historically accurate. What they're trying to do is tell you something exciting, take you on a journey so that you don't begrudge the ticket price of entry. That's what's going on here. It's an exchange of goods and services. And that's okay, provided you find the rules. And what's great is I've known about the Dahomey Amazons for 10, 12 years. I sort of dug them up and sort of like found out about them in a different period of my sort of history writing career. And so I've always thought they would be a great movie, but it's never going to get made. So when I found out that it was going to be made, I thought, oh, this is great and wonderful. But I think it surprised a few people. It hasn't necessarily blown the doors off at the box office, and it wasn't the biggest film budget of all time. But, you know, money was spent on it. Efforts being put in. There was a serious marketing campaign. Basically, the studio wants people to see it, and they want it to just spread out of it being a niche black movie, something, you know, like Judas and the Messiah, which was a, a very good movie about basically the, the start of the Black Panthers. Again, true story, but very niche, low budget, 
And again, one of these white adjacent movies where basically the black people are doing their best and terrible things happen to them because the white majority is scared of them. So the politics isn't there. You're just meant to whoop for the good guys, boo at the bad guys. You get exciting action scenes and it's great to see women of color just going into battle and kicking ass and taking names, to use an American phrase. I'm going to be kicking butts and taking names and then giving those names to other people whose butts I kick. All right, Jim. So how are you going to tie this in any way to the rings of power then? Choose not the path of fear, but that of faith. Because as I was saying, that there were some people who got their nose out of joint that it was like, oh, this isn't historically accurate. It didn't happen this way, you know. And they're right. But what's interesting is, with the Rings of Power series, and I, I would love it if Greg could put in, like, a, a klaxon here, an alarm or something. Rude alert, rude alert. An electrical fire has knocked out my voice recognition unicycle. There are going to be major spoilers for Rings of Power series one. I did a whole episode on Rings of Power, but I deliberately didn't put any spoilers in it. This time around, we've gone through the whole series. You've had an opportunity to see it. So, yeah, I... And please... Come to me on at Gem on Twitter. Love to get your thoughts on what I'm saying this week and love to get your thoughts on your own views about the direction the Rings of Power are going to be going on later on. This is super nerd territory we are heading into. But the other thing I'm going to say right now, please, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast and you like it, please click subscribe and please give us a review. Even if you just sort of click the five stars, thank you very much for that. Anything like that helps sort of get some attention, helps the algorithm, helps spread the word. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. So let's go back to Rings of Power. Now, it led to a huge debate amongst people who like Tolkien. And the thing is, of course, none of this happened. All fantasy, as I said earlier. But Tolkien has written so much and so extensively about the world of Middle-earth that you literally get Tolkien scholars now. There is such a body of work. And as I've said again in, in the episode, I went, you know, literally there are volumes of his letters where they're actually, you know, sort of like putting in details and so on and so forth. Some of this was compiled. A tiny fragment of it was compiled into the Silmarillion that was actually released after his death. And you also get Luthien and Beren and, and some of these other stories that get fleshed out by Christopher Tolkien or others. And are sort of released as, you know, this is a Tolkien work, and it is, but the original J.R.R. sketched it out. It was never a fully formed novel, and basically it was down to people around him, and either his son or grandson, who are actually sort of making these things into a, a larger book. All that I get, but the thing is, though, there's so much material that just as you'll get sort of an expert on Dickens or an expert on Shakespeare, there are literally the same kind of literary experts on Tolkien and his world. People have taught themselves the Elvish language which he created. And indeed, Tolkien has been interviewed saying, you know, all stories are about death. And also there's these stories of Middle Earth are about language. And this is why language is so important and names are so important, which, as I said in the previous one, sort of brings us into the kind of Anglo-Saxon Viking era, sort of early medieval era of mindset. Now, some people have got very upset about this series and it actually got review bombed. And what's weird about it, 
is the fact that it's been coming out the same time as House of the Dragon, and everybody I know prefers the Rings of Power to House of the Dragon, but if you were to look at them on Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb, I, personally IMDb is the one I think is my favourite, and you get House of Dragon, which has an aggregate over 8 score out of 10, whereas Rings of Power is sort of like hovering around like a 6.7, something like, you know, Dragons is about 8.5, Rings is about 6.7. It's like, no, I would have put those the other way round, quite frankly. I respectfully disagree. And what is really interesting about that is, as far as I can work out, there are three types of people who are really angry about Rings of Power. Occasionally, all three can be combined into one odious individual. If you're that person, sorry, you're not on the right side of history on that one. But anyway, number one are the super Tolkien nerds going, basically, hashtag, not my Sauron, or something like that. I don't think that, that hashtag's actually existed. Where basically, every time they play fast and loose with the law, they get upset. Because this law's been around for 50, 60 years, and people have been poring over it, and now they're sort of jumping on it. Now, clearly, there is a lot of reverence to Tolkien as a whole, but you do have to make your story. And you, he's, he's created the L-O-R-E. He hasn't created lots of characters and dialogue and story arcs and things like that. The stuff in the Silmarillion is really hard to read because it's like reading the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. It's like a list of events that happen. There isn't a lot of adjectives even in it, certainly not a lot of speeches and quotations. It's just little snippets of speeches followed by this event happened and then this person went to this place and did the thing and then they, they then went on to the other place and then they fought a thing and then they died. It's almost like hearing a story from an eight-year-old, like, how was your summer holiday? Well, we did this and we did that and we did this. The end. Sort of, okay, could have turned it into an actual story for me rather than just a list of things that happened. And that's what the Silmarillion largely is. Sorry. Is it intriguing that this person created this whole world and whole history? Absolutely. Is it a great bedtime read? Well, unless you want to be sent to sleep. No, not really. Anyway, that's type number one are the people who go, they've messed around with the law. I'm out. Okay. Number two are the racists who you get people going, ah, the elves aren't black. Well, the elves aren't real, so you can be any colour they want to be because they're elves. Same thing with dwarves and stuff like that. And what I find brilliant is when you have, we've never seen a female dwarf before. Now, if you go back to the Lord of the Rings movies, if you go back to the third movie, Return of the King, I think it's Return of the King? It could be The Two Towers. It's the two towers, says Jim, trying to remember. There's 14 hours, and I'm trying to remember one line from it. We'll see if Greg can even dig it out. I accept that challenge. But Gimli is talking and basically saying that people don't realize that there are female dwarves. They basically go, oh, we think we're born from rock. It goes, uh, no, you know, the women have beards too. And, and Aragorn sort of like in, intonates this as well. It's true, you don't see many dwarf women. And in fact... They are so alike in voice and appearance <laughs> that they're often mistaken for dwarf men. It's the beards. So if you were to have a woman with a full beard, that would look ridiculous. So what do they do with her in the series is if you look carefully, she's got little tufts on her cheeks. It's almost like she's got wispy mutton chops 
or wispy sideburns, which obviously women don't have. Now, is that a beard? No, it isn't. But also, it's not quite human either, just like the elves have pointy ears. So it's a really clever bit. It's a sign, if you like, that they're paying attention. But when people start saying, oh, you know, why do we have to have people of colour in it and blah, blah, blah. You're being racist. Simple as that. Well, they're not in the original movies. It was a different time. And also in New Zealand, it isn't full of African-Americans. OK, so they got the white people. Maoris are in there if you look for them. Unfortunately, a lot of them ended up being the orcs, which they had a great time doing. But then we can start adding sort of like racial charging to that as well. But please don't. It is all made up. But if you're Amazon and you're trying to appeal to the whole world, it can't just be a cast of white people. In fact, they had to work really hard in the original Lord of the Rings movies just to get some girls in there. Arwen isn't really in Lord of the Rings. She's in the appendices at the end. She still turns up right at the end to marry Aragorn. But there she is in various scenes. She's in that brilliant bit where she's being chased by the Nazgul and manages to get to Elrond over the river. That wasn't done by her. That was actually done by an elf. Fun fact about that elf, the only elf ever described by Tolkien to have facial hair. He had a moustache. So definitely not Arwen. But they need to put something in there, otherwise it's just this sort of white guy adventure and you are alienating more than 50% of the world's population there. So just give us something. So of course with this TV series they were going to add people of colour and it works fine, it works great. It's not like somebody standing there. The biggest crime would be if they couldn't be able to do the accents and I find it amazing how some of these people are doing broad Midlands accents from England or northern accents like Leeds and stuff like that and then you look in the list and it's like, huh, they're Australian, who you. You know, they nailed that accent so well. I just assumed they were using their local accent. There are no American accents, no Australian accents. Everybody's got a various regional dialect from England or, or, or Scotland or Wales. And I love that and it works really well. So that's odious group number two and odious group number three. Well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know. But then there's the ones who are just angry that Jeff Bezos is super rich and Amazon makes so much money. Well, to that I say, the point of a company is to make money. So... You know, fine. If you if you want to be communist about this, if you want to say, you know, equal distribution of stuff, great. But it hasn't worked anywhere. So good luck with that plan. And secondly, I don't care. That's got nothing to do with the quality of the TV show. Indeed, if Jeff Bezos didn't have so much money, they would never have been able to make the TV show. So to those three groups, and like I say, to the Tolkien nut who's also a racist who also hates amazon well this was never going to please you go away you're irrelevant to this conversation but to everybody else obviously there are things you like and, and don't like now i'm one of these people who i'm not a tolkien nut hardcore i haven't read the letters for example but i have read the silmarillion i poured through the appendices when i was a kid the you know, first time I ever got Lord of the Rings. I've loved it. I've known about some of these stories. When I heard about it, it was going to be in the second age. Like, oh my God, we're going to see the creation of the Rings of Power and that's going to be amazing. Blah, 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 blah. So I'm definitely ahead of most normal people when it comes to Tolkien knowledge. Indeed, during this series, my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law and her husband, all of them keep asking me questions because they know I'm the guy to ask, like, oh, who's this and what's going on there? And why isn't Numenor in the Lord of the Rings? It's going to get destroyed. You kind of see that in on these visions. I know enough, but I've had to do some deeper dives on this stuff. But even I 
have some problems and, and non-problems. So here we are. You've had plenty of warning coming up to some spoiler territory here, okay? So when they first said that Mithril was going to keep the elves alive, it's like, ah, that's a terrible idea. Until it became apparent that they weren't going to have much Mithril, so that's why the elvish rings were created. I like that. That's not included in Tolkien's lore. Indeed, if you see the bit where there's an elven lord fighting a Balrog by a tree and the lightning strikes, and that's how Mithril's formed, all made up, by the writers, but let's face it, again, all of it's made up. It's a cool story. Why not? Why not have that? Didn't like it initially, but by the time they'd implemented it, I did like it. Now, that's something I do like. Then we come to The Stranger, and there's been furious debate already about this. He's definitely a wizard. We now know by the end of the series he is a wizard. He's an Ishtar, or Ishtar. He's not Sauron. So, okay, that works. There are five wizards, three of them you know of. So there's Gandalf the Grey, Saruman the White, and then there's Radagast the Brown. Now, obviously, Saruman and Gandalf, both of those are key figures in Lord of the Rings and also The Hobbit. Fine, great. Radagast is mentioned briefly. You get more information about him in ancillary stories and stuff like that, but only a little bit. And then there are the two blue wizards. There are a total of five wizards in Middle-earth. Two of them we know loads about, one of them we know a bit about, and then there are the two blue wizards that are just mentioned in passing by Tolkien, just goes, you know, there are five in total and there are two blue, and he doesn't even name them, and we know nothing about them. So, when it comes to The Stranger, do notice, by the way, that even when you pause it, it does flash up people and their names, as it were. It still says The Stranger, even in episode eight, even at the end of episode eight, it says The Stranger. It is obviously he's a wizard, it is heavily implied that he's Gandalf, but it doesn't work for Gandalf. First of all, if he does turn out to be Gandalf, then I am one of these people who's kind of angry at them, go, that doesn't happen. You shall not pass! So for starters, if you really want to know, yes, the wizards come down like you see with the stranger, you know, like, like meteorites, comets. But they come down in the Third Age, after all of this has happened, basically. So they shouldn't be in this series at all. So the timing is completely off. But okay, fine. Maybe they, they've come down early. But if it's Gandalf, he would be powerful enough to actually be a player in all of this. Why isn't he? And so I don't think it's Gandalf. I think it's a blue wizard. Now, we're obviously meant to think it's Gandalf, because that did sort of win the internet for 24 hours. People went, oh my god, it's Gandalf! The Stranger's Gandalf! But you could, if you like, have that twice, because they never say it's Gandalf. Now, he does use that line exactly the same as Gandalf does in Moria. He goes, well, if in doubt, always follow your nose. When in doubt, Eleanor Brandyfoot. Always follow your nose. And, you know, he says that, at, so basically, that's his last line in the series, in series one. But it could just be an indication that he's a blue wizard. The other thing which I had to be told, this is a real deep dive, is Gandalf only worked in the West, in the areas that you know about in Lord of the Rings, be it the Shire or Gondor, places like that. This guy is going to run, and run existed in both the Second Age and the Third Age, and it's East 
of Mordor, which is already east. So why they're going to Ruin, nobody knows. Only a little bit was written about by Tolkien about Ruin. And the fact that he's going east implies that that can't be Gandalf, because Gandalf said, the, you know, I never travelled east. It's a line somewhere. I don't know exactly where. So I do think that this is going to be a blue wizard, in which case he can be anything he likes. Whereas with Gandalf, he is pure good. And this idea that he's caused kind of destruction and damage in the meantime... I don't like that, even if he's got sort of some sort of amnesia. However, the three creepy ladies who, when they get destroyed, they sort of like turn almost like the Nazgul do when, when Frodo puts on the ring. I love the nickname for them, the Nazgals. Love it. Absolutely love it. They were a complete invention, but they were creepy and they were wonderful. And yeah, 10 out of 10 for that one. So you can see there's a lot going on. Then, of course, as I said, you've got the creation of the Rings of Power. But the problem here, again, is in the wrong order. The Elvish Rings were created last, according to Tolkien. This, were in the TV series, they're the first to be created. Three for the elves, seven for the dwarves, nine for the men. And the last song, which I absolutely adored, as, as the credits start, started rolling on the eighth and final episode of series one, Oh, that sent shivers down my, my spine. I think her name is Fiona Apple. And the way she sings, I mean, they're, they're just statements, really, from Tolkien's work. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky. But it's, it's beautiful and eerie and sort of melancholy. Ah, oh, brilliant. Brilliant song there. So I love that. And then, of course, let's briefly talk about Sauron. So Sauron did influence the creation of the rings. That's important. And you do see him doing that in this series. But, and, you know, he says, consider a gift to Celebrimbor. And his name in the Second Age, which he's mainly known as, is Anatar, which means the giver of gifts. So that's another clue to all of us. And then, obviously, there's this big conversation between him and Galadriel. The thing that, of course, it could all be is him being an unreliable narrator to try and seduce Galadriel to the dark side, basically, to use a Star Wars metaphor. So he could be just lying through his teeth. But this idea of sort of like anguish and stuff like that... I don't buy that. We are well into the second age there. He might have had his doubts immediately after Morgoth was defeated, but this is centuries later. No, he is he is evil. Although I did like the line, we can save Middle-earth. Don't you mean rule? I don't see a difference. And And I quite like that as an idea. He's not sort of exactly cackling evil. He is more about, and this is the, the, the one thing that Tolkien's been quite clear, the ring is an analogy of power. It's an allegory of power. And so, you know, power corrupts, the ring corrupts. And Sauron is looking for the ring like he's always looking for power. That works really well. I liked Sauron, but he is kind of in the wrong place, doing the wrong things. Also, he's sort of coming us as this grubby man. Anytime he's referenced in the Second Age, he's sort of like this sort of golden looks and everyone thinks he's gorgeous. I know there are some people who think he looks gorgeous. Halbrand looked gorgeous. But he's generally an elf. Now, I'm hoping in season two, they're going to use the actor who played Finrod, the brother of Galadriel, because already you've seen him being a mouthpiece of Sauron. That basically when he is formally named Anatar and he's causing merry hell, basically, in... Numenor, where he creates this cult for Morgoth, and that brings down Numenor. That is what causes the flooding and destruction, but we're probably a few seasons ahead of it. 
maybe what we'll see, season one, the rings of power for the elves are made. Season two, the dwarves, their seven rings are made. Season three, the nine rings of men are made. Season four, the ring of power is made. And season five, it all leads up to the big battle that, that ends the second age, which we see briefly at the start of Lord of the Rings. So that would work. Those are my thoughts overall. But what I find interesting is that people have got upset at both the woman king and also the rings of power for people going off what is already established fact. Except, obviously, with the woman king, we're talking about real actual facts. But with Lord of the Rings, all of it's made up. But I am going to say, if you're going to make up your own stuff, it's got to be better than the original. And if you are going to go off, off the path, be careful. Because there are a lot of people out there where this stuff is really important to us, and we've been into it a lot longer than Amazon's owned the rights. So Amazon does have to be careful. By and large, they have been hugely respectful, and most of the time when they played fast and loose with stuff, it's paid off pretty well. But I am still a bit worried about some certain things. Like they, you know, playing so fast and loose with a timeline is a worry. And it might mean that they might start skipping out certain bits. And it's sort of like, don't skip out the main parts of the story, particularly to do with Sauron. It's really interesting how he corrupts Numenor to his ends. So that's it, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much for listening. And as always, another podcast coming soon. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.